Hey friends, welcome back to the Black Diamond Podcast. This is your host, Eric Malzone. And this is the show where I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing entrepreneurs, founders, change makers, and people who are just creatively leading the way through innovation. And it's not only about successes and, and great stories, because you'll definitely get those, but it's also about the personal challenges and the vulnerability that we face along the way. So this show is brought to you by Level 5 Mentors, helping entrepreneurs and founders achieve the highest levels of freedom in five different categories, time, money, relationships, health, and purpose. And if you want to find out how you're doing in those five categories, we got you covered. We got a survey for that. Just go to level5mentors.com forward slash survey, and you can take the free entrepreneurial survey and see how you're doing in each category and see where you have room for improvement because, hey, we can always be improving. So welcome to the show. Let's get on to it. Pat Lapointe, welcome to the Black Diamond Podcast. Thanks, Eric. Happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, and greetings from Montana to Mexico. Uh, way to plan the winter. Uh, <laughs> really? Uh, it was uh, sort of a, a combination of trying to figure out where I was going to get my usual January warmth and sunshine and where infection rates were the lowest. And uh, Mexico seemingly has has done a very good job of managing COVID infection rates. It's as we speak, the infection rates here are only about 20% of the infection rates in Montana even. So, Wow. Uh, it's a reasonable place to hang out on the beach and, and manage COVID risk. Yeah. And just for people listening, just uh, for reference, today's date of recording is January 12th, 2021. Uh, I've been doing that a lot, Pat, of actually naming the exact date of recording, which I never had done before. But it's been such a weird 12 months that's like, you never know what January 13th will be. It could change everything. <laughs> like, right. We could be talking in the pre-January 13th reality, which will be coming tomorrow, which could shift everything. So anyway, that's why I do that. Well, that's certain. Well, the question is how it shifts everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, man, well, Pat, I'm, I'm fired up for this interview. I, I have a lot of just natural questions based on curiosity about what you do and who you are and your experience. But maybe uh, I guess a great place to start would be, um, you know, how did you get to this place where you, you, you run Frontier Angels? And yeah, give us your, your backstory. How'd you get to where you are now? Uh, persistence, I think, in a word. Um, I started my career uh, in the ad agency business on Madison Avenue and uh, worked for a couple of big ad agencies and uh, ran a couple of very large global accounts and handled way too much money and responsibility for the age I was at and the lack of experience I had, but tried to learn fast and then uh, spent some time uh, running a large sales and marketing operation for a telecommunications company, one of the original baby bells called Bell Atlantic which is now known as Verizon. Um, and I ran a large sales and marketing operation for them for a few years and hated every single day of it. But boy, did I learn a lot. Learned a lot about process and strategy and uh, business management and leadership skills and all kinds of really good foundational things. And ultimately, that prepared me for, uh, I don't know if you can call it a career being an entrepreneur, but uh, over the course of the past 25 years, I've been fortunate enough to either be the founder or co-founder of three different companies that um, 
We're all in the marketing data analytics and sort of SaaS arena. And I've been fortunate enough to get all three of those companies off the ground and growing and and ultimately sold. Um, And it was after the sale of my last one about seven or eight years ago that I really started realizing that I was just addicted to the creation. I really enjoy being around in the early days when things are being created and um, helping to define or refine a vision and breathe life into them and and help them get going. And so I, I decided that, you know, maybe I could use some of my own experience as well as my ability to, you know, raise and organize capital and and sort of put it to work in a different way. And that's uh, when angel investing kind of presented itself to me. Um, and I really like the opportunity of working so closely with entrepreneurs as well as with other investors and and being on the forefront of a lot of really cool innovation. So that's kind of what got me here. You know, it's uh, <clears throat> what, what you said just a minute ago about being addicted to the, <clears throat> excuse me, addicted to the creation. That really resonated with me. I, I've noticed that, you know, I've um, I've never done SaaS, but I've done small business and built and sold. And, you know, you get, did you ever feel that you got to a certain point where the company was kind of, executing on its own and you just got bored? Like, what do you think drives that, that addiction to creativity? Is it the thrill of it? Is it the, um, you know, the discomfort in status quo? Like, what, what do you think drives that? I don't know. For me, the signal for me is usually when we get to a point where we've really proven that the value proposition is solid that the product delivers, the product or service delivers on all the customer's expectations, that, that they feel like the customer feels like they're getting good money, good value for their money. And the customer is actually starting to tell their friends and, and others uh, that they should buy from us as well. You know, once we get to that point and we start the process then of actually building the mechanism to scale that's when I've just sort of discovered that my own particular skills and abilities are of less value than, than others um, who have been down that road before and are better suited to the incremental mechanics uh, of it uh, than I am. I'm much better suited to the, I guess the big swings, um, that happen in the very early stages. Uh, and I'm very comfortable in the ambiguity and the risk of those big swings. So when we talk about being addicted to it, I'm, I'm certain that at some level, there's something biological going on in there. Fortunately, it, it hasn't drawn me to the craps tables, but rather <laughs> early stage investing instead. Yeah, which is, uh, you know, I guess more calculated gambling at some point. Right. Um, so here's, here's the one big topic that I'm really curious about is, you know, I've, I've heard the term angel investing come around many times. I can't say probably like a lot of people who are listening, I'm exactly clear 
on what that is. Maybe you give us some background because I know you've been in this world for a while. Like, <clears throat> where did it? Where did angel investing kind of start from, and what does it represent, and what does it mean compared to maybe more traditional investment routes? Yeah, give us some insights on that. Well, angel investing was really has been around for probably millennia, um, certainly decades in the United States. Um, and, and essentially, it used to just be that entrepreneurs would find a high net worth benefactor who would be willing to give them some money to get their business off the ground in exchange for some sort of a return on that investment. Um, over the years, uh, that got institutionalized to, and professionalized to varying degrees, and, and the uh, whole industry of venture capital was born. Uh, and so these days, uh, rather than be sort of the the main umbrella for what we consider to be early stage investing, venture capital has become the sort of prominent big dollar element of it. You know, venture capital firms having anywhere from three to 300 people and deploying funds of anywhere between 25 million and, and you know, $5 billion these days. Um, but angels still play a big role in the ecosystem. Uh, angel investors tend to invest a little earlier than venture capitalists. Um, we Venture capitalists tend to wait until there's some clearer evidence of what we call product market fit, meaning that, um, uh, that the, the company has created something that customers are indeed going to be willing to buy. Uh, so they usually wait for some evidence of product market fit. They usually wait for some evidence that customers can be acquired uh, at a price point that is going to make the business profitable over time. Angels tend to get involved earlier when things are less certain and therefore more risky. Um, and in exchange for that earlier position, uh, angels normally are, are buying into a company at a lower valuation, which means that, you know, a, a modest to moderate increase in the overall performance and therefore value of the company can lead to a really attractive return for an angel investor. Whereas in the venture world, when you're waiting a little bit longer until the company is a little bit more seated um, and investing uh, many more dollars usually than angels invest. You often have to wait until that company has achieved uh, a much higher level of proof of value before you can exit the, the company. So, you know, for simplicity, think of angels as really early stage venture capitalists, um, people who are more accustomed to taking risks very early on in the life stage of a business. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense now. And I, you know, my immediate follow-up question, uh, my mind leads to is, you know, when you're taking on that additional risk and coming in at an early valuation and I guess being also probably more present, right. Um, just because you want to make sure, you know, you, you kind of come in and almost as like a strategic, uh, investor, what, what are the qualities that you look for when you're investing in these early stage companies? 
well, a lot of it depends on the nature of the company in terms of what sector they're in, what kind of product or service they're trying to bring to the market, et cetera. But there are a few general characteristics that are that make uh, an opportunity attractive to angels. First and foremost, it, it's people. Um, so we're looking for entrepreneurs who bring a tremendous amount of expertise to the table. Maybe it's technical expertise. They really understand their subject matter from a technical perspective. Or maybe it's customer expertise. You know, they've they've done the time. They've spent the Gladwellian 10,000 hours of uh, really studying the market and the customers and what they want and why they're not getting it from the current options, et cetera. Um, and so we're looking for entrepreneurs who bring that expertise, but also you know, bring a, a leadership competency with them. They, they have a level of energy um, that others are drawn to. They are able to clearly articulate the vision. They're uh, very self-aware in terms of where their strengths and their personal limitations are and how they can continue to improve as leaders um, or even step out of the way when the time comes. Um, so, you know, that's sort of a basket of things that we look for in, in terms of the actual people. Beyond that, we're, we're always looking for um, things that have a highly relevant degree of innovation. So it's not just a slightly better mousetrap, but a significantly better mousetrap. In other words, maybe let's not worry about trapping the mice. Let's figure out how we actually just get rid of them. <laughs> um, so we're looking for sort of that, you know, that big leap opportunity where it's based in some form of a defensible intellectual property, whether that's patents or just, you know, keeping trade secrets. Um, they're both fine in different circumstances. Um, so we look for a big innovation backed up by some defensible intellectual property. Uh, we look for evidence of a big market opportunity that uh, that if this thing is successful and it takes off, that that there's hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of potential market opportunity out there in front of it. Um, and we look for, uh, I guess the way I would characterize it is a, a solid plan. Now, the one thing we know, Eric, when, when an entrepreneur is very early in their business, um, the only thing we know about the plan is that it's just garbage. We know that it's wrong. We just don't know how yet, right? Or how much it's wrong. And so when I say we're looking for a solid plan, we're, we're not looking for something that portends to have all of the answers, but rather a very thoughtful way of looking at the risk and return elements and trying to figure out uh, what are the drivers of success likely to be? How do we achieve those drivers of success? And what are the risks that we will encounter along the way that are likely to kill this thing? Because in the early stage, the risks usually greatly outnumber um, the, the strengths of, a, of any particular plan. So we're always looking for a solid plan that thoughtfully encapsulates those elements. 
if for no other reason than because it allows us to have an honest, um, thoughtful, um, uh, really well-grounded conversation with the entrepreneur to make sure that we feel like we're the right investors for them and, and that they're a good candidate for us. Awesome. That's really useful and valuable information for, I know a lot of people who listen to this show are, um, you know, kind of emerging entrepreneurs, uh, maybe lifestyle entrepreneurs and kind of trying to differentiate the difference. You know, I wanted to just kind of focus a little bit of time on this interview too, on frontier angels and what it is that you guys actually do. Is it, is it a community? Is it, um, an investment fund? Like what, give us, give us the, I guess the summary of what you guys do at Frontier. Yeah, sure. So Frontier Angels uh, is an organization of about 90 individuals from across Montana. And these are people who have um, built and uh, in many instances already sold their own uh, companies or people who are C-level executives in other companies, either locally or around the country or increasingly around the world. They come from many different types of industry sectors. They come from software and IoT and uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. And they come from medical devices and biotech. And they come from banking and financial services and consulting and real estate and ranching and farming and um, and everything else that you might find in Montana. Um, but they come together and evaluate opportunities to invest through their own individual lenses, and they share their thoughts and perspectives and experience uh, and um, have really productive exchanges with each other to help fully assess the risks and returns of each opportunity. And in the process, inevitably, we wind up with a, a subset of the 90 people who are interested in investing in a particular company. And, and that subset will move forward and conduct some pretty thorough due diligence on the opportunity and work closely with the entrepreneur and their co-founders um, to make sure that we see an accurate picture and that we're aligned in our mutual expectations of things. And and then we'll move forward and, and make an investment and, and one or two or three of those uh, investors will become part of a board of directors or an advisory group of mentors for the entrepreneur and help them not only fill out the rest of their fundraising round, but also, you know, help them continue to work on improving their plan and, and capitalize on the opportunities and avoid the risks that present themselves day in and day out. So it's both a a group of individual investors who uh, who have developed a common process and common lexicon for the way that we look at things and talk about things, which makes us pretty efficient in terms of uh, how entrepreneurs can deal with us, as well as efficient in terms of how we work together. And then we also have a, a fund that we uh, have built that um, most of our 90 members are involved with, and then we have a number of other people who are not members of our 90 member group who have also invested in our fund. And that fund follows the investors. So whenever, uh, four or more of our investors decide that they're going to invest a certain amount of money 
in a particular company, our fund will add another 33% on top of that. And as a result, the fund winds up building a portfolio of 20 to 25 companies over the course of a couple of years. So it's both. Well, and how do you, um, I guess two things is how do you locate, like, what does it take to be a member of the Frontier Angels? And then how do you guys go about um, finding investment companies? So first, let me suggest that anybody who is interested in answers to those two questions should see my website at frontierangels.com because Perfect. there's more in-depth answers in the form of both text and video on both of those topics. Uh, in a nutshell, to be an angel investor, you, you need to be what the SEC calls an accredited investor. Uh, and there are certain criteria for um, your liquid assets and uh, income levels um, in order to be an accredited investor. And basically, that's just the SEC making sure that people aren't pitching software companies to retirees who can't afford to be investing in things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some requirements, and you can find more of the, that information on Frontier Angels website. And in terms of the companies that we're looking for, our, our investment thesis is really built around what we call tech-leveraged business models. So we concentrate on companies that are developing some of their own technology somehow and using it at the core of their value proposition. So, for example, a company that is developing machine learning uh, software to recognize uh, digital images and ascertain the likelihood that those images might or might not be skin cancer, for example, right? Um, That's an example of a tech-leveraged company where they're actually really creating their own technology. Contrast that with uh, a company that is selling uh, some very high quality, maybe hemp um, apparel um, and selling it primarily on e-commerce and doing an excellent job of of marketing themselves and selling their product on e-commerce. That's not our definition of a tech leverage business because there's really no fundamental technology element at the core of the product that they're offering. Understand? Yep. And so we look for tech leveraged business models uh, that have the potential to produce uh, very high levels of profitability because ideally in those models, as revenue grows, the costs don't grow proportionately, right? Uh, Because you've invested in the technology and the R&D upfront, which is, by the way, where the angel investment usually goes to to all of that upfront R&D that has to be done before you even have a product. Um, And then once those businesses get running, um, we're looking for businesses that have high strategic value uh, to other potential acquirers. Uh, So it used to be that people like to invest in in startups with the with the hope and the aspiration that a startup would grow and ultimately become an IPO. And I guess that's even uh, oddly true to some degree today with all of the craziness around SPACs and IPOs that um, more and more companies are realistically looking at IPO as an outcome. But the statistics much more commonly favor the prospect of a young technology company being acquired by another bigger company who sees their product or their technology or 
or their customer base as an asset that they really want to own and are therefore willing to to pay a, a significant amount of money for it. Um, those are the kinds of things we we look for. It's it's interesting because I've uh, you know I've been in the fitness industry for for quite some time. Um, you know, basically at kind of every level, right? From trainer to coach to facility owner to um, multi facility owner to advisor to all of it. And um, frankly, like the fitness industry wasn't super interesting until 2020. And uh, uh, things really like tech, you know, all of a sudden people like yourself and yeah, people mirror um, Peloton. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Now all of a sudden it's super interesting and I'm starting to see, you know, people who I've known for a while who maybe started, you know, a CRM or, you know, some kind of coaching tool and these acquisitions are coming before they even really launch. Um, so it's, it's, it's fascinating because I don't, to me, like in 2020, it's, it's all this investment uh, has come into the fitness industry, the the place I know so well, and I'm seeing it all play out like you're speaking, um, the way you're describing everything, but it's just been happening at an accelerated pace, you know, uh, just tons of investments, you know, just talking to a friend offline about, you know, a company he's, he's invested in early on and he's already got an LOI, uh, letter of intent to buy and they haven't even launched yet. And, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting to see all this play out of, with, you know, my, goggles of, of the fitness industry. Uh, one of the things that you and I um, kind of talked about previously is I would love to tap into because I've been in Montana for, you know, I guess this is my fourth year living here and, you know, really starting to get to know mainly through this podcast, the entrepreneurial community around, and it's robust. You know, there is a lot of entrepreneurial spirit in this state. And I would love to talk about the tech ecosystem that you've, you've, been a part of for so long here. But I guess one of the first questions I would have when we get into that is what do you think makes Montana so entrepreneurial? Like, why do you think it's a destination or a home for many entrepreneurs? Well, I suspect that the, that the answer to that question may be different today than it was uh, three years ago. I think three years ago, if you ask the question, what makes Montana such a fertile uh, environment for entrepreneurs? Um, the answer was culture. It was, you know, a couple of centuries of independence, of farmers, of ranchers, um, of loggers, of miners um, coming to the frontier to quite literally carve out uh, their piece of the American success story, right? And I think along the way, there was, uh, uh, you know, small towns developed and those small towns were populated by, by people who started banks and, and insurance agents and, and merchants, et cetera. So I think Montana, perhaps even more so than many of the other states in the country, still had a very clear memory of its history. And, and that inspired a lot of self-reliant people to think about launching their own businesses. I mean, let's face it, there haven't been a lot of big companies you could come here and go to work for. Right. Right. But I think in the last few years, what we've seen more of is the, uh, the startup community is being comprised more and more of people who are new to Montana. And I, I'll 
I myself am relatively new to Montana. I've only been a full-time resident of Montana for about eight years now, um, part-time for about 10 years prior to that. But um, I, I think Montana is now attracting talented entrepreneurs with great skills who have done things elsewhere in the country and along the way realized that they were paying too high a price for the lifestyle uh, of positioning themselves in the heart of Silicon Valley or uh, in the heart of New York City or, or wherever else they may be in a traffic-choked, high-tax, um, expensive school uh, kind of an environment. And, and they saw an opportunity to um, reduce the cost from that perspective while still nurturing their ambition to, to breathe life into some sort of a new company. I think that's what's happening now. And, and I'm delighted that we're benefiting from the arrival of so many talented, smart, uh, energetic, entrepreneurial people who would really love to help create the next economy in the world and do it from right here in Montana. Um, I think that's super encouraging for us from a long-term economic foundation perspective. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, you know, like I said, I've, through this show, I've, I've connected with a lot of entrepreneurs and it's, it's been really interesting. I mean, I, you know, the reason we ended up here my wife and my wife's originally from Brazil. So, you know, there's no way, you know, 20 years ago, she would have ever guessed she would have ended up in Northwest Montana, but here we are, uh, you know, being a business owner in California and just seeing, and I grew up born and raised in essentially the Silicon Valley and then, you know, landed in, you know, uh, uh, Santa Barbara for quite some time where I, I ran businesses and just seeing how it changed so much. And I know, you know, people in Montana will cringe to the Californication of the state, but it is what it is. Uh, but I think a lot of us, you know, a lot of people and now, of course, with the pandemic, people really expedited their exits from places like that. But that's what drove me here. It was like, well, can I have it both? Can I have the lifestyle of a Montana and the culture that is here? Like, I don't want to change a thing. I love the way it is here. But then also make a great living and make an impact from here. And I think there's a lot of people who probably came here having that same spirit. And, uh, you know, it just makes it for a really interesting and, and cool place to be. Uh, when we talk about yeah, the tech, about it, we're really together. We're really creating a new frontier. We're yeah. we're trying to figure out how we build a tech community uh, in a place like Montana, where we don't have to make those great lifestyle sacrifices, right? And yeah. and yet we have to deal with frontier-like challenges. And uh, again, not suggesting that. We have it as tough as our ancestors did, um, but uh, but still, you know, we're we're building, we're trying to build these companies in an environment where there isn't a lot of the skilled tech labor that we need to make them happen yet, um, and where the ecosystem doesn't yet have very high functioning uh, networking capabilities. Um, it's building and it's building nicely, but it's, you know, still early days. So we are sort of pioneering technology on the frontier of Montana. 
So talk to me about the tech ecosystem here. I mean, you get hubs, right? I'm Bozeman and Missoula, I presume, are kind of the top two for, for tech. And Whitefish. And Whitefish, right? Um, I mean, we got Two Bear Capital here and, um, you know, a lot of companies that are growing. Yeah, I mean, Neuro ID is uh, doing really well up there. And there's a number of other um, tech companies that are, are building in Whitefish and doing really well. Uh, what am I missing? Billings? Is that a, a hub? As well, Billings is still coming up. Their Billings is, has made a lot of really positive steps. There have been a number of new startups that are getting going in Billings. The the community uh, in Billings, from the mayor and the and the uh, council, uh, all the way through the business leaders, um, have all done a very very good job of starting to organize themselves to to help support uh, the emergence of the tech community in Billings. So. Things are a little earlier there, but there's definitely a lot of positive signs. What do you think, uh, if you're going to give Montana as a state a grade on how welcoming they are to entrepreneurs and new businesses, how, how do you think we're doing as a state? Well, I think we do very well from the perspective of um, encouraging entrepreneurs to to come here um, to bring with them visions and capabilities of, of new economy uh, businesses and, and the potential to create high-quality, high-paying jobs in our communities. I think we're very welcoming in that respect. Uh, I think every town slash city in Montana um, has developed um, a fairly effective welcome map uh, sort of initiative in order to help try to make those things happen. I think we're still a bit hampered by uh, the absence of public policy support in Montana. Um, so Montana is one of only nine states in the country that does not offer some form of uh, direct uh, incentive for investment in early stage companies. Uh, amongst the other nine, you have California, which doesn't need it. <laughs> uh, right. New York, same ballpark. Massachusetts, same ballpark, right? They, they simply have so much population and they're, they're such commerce centers that they really don't need those incentive structures. But then the remaining uh, five, taking Montana out of that mix, are states like Mississippi, in Alabama um, and other places around the country where the economies are still very far behind in terms of the evolution of the tech ecosystems. Um, and at some point soon, Montana's really going to have to um, ask itself the hard questions about what we aspire to be in terms of the economy of the future uh, and not be so incredibly reliant upon the economy of the past, nor to be so complacent around the idea that, well, you know, great entrepreneurs will just move here because it's so incredibly beautiful. Um, so I, I score us very high in terms of the actual community level of uh, openness and welcoming of people who really come here with great aspirations and want to do creative new things. And I score us pretty low in terms of our the degree of, of strategic organization we have 
at the state level in terms of actually trying to promote uh, some of that accelerated growth. But hopefully that's something that we'll be able to address in the current legislative session in the first quarter of 2021. You know, I, I've noticed this as in like an underlying feeling is that, you know, uh, there's a stark feeling of independence in Montana, you know, maybe um, people who, you know, definitely um, who are more conservative, maybe been in the state for a long time and they don't want to be reliant on other things. And yet there's also this, this unstoppable growth, right. That's taking place. And they're, there seems to be missing some ground of realism uh, at times of like, well, this is happening. So how do we optimize it and yet keep all of the great things about Montana? And where I'm getting at this is like, if we project, you know, let's say, let's give it a timeline of 10 years in the future, what would be the ideal vision of that balance, right? Between keeping Montana beautiful, you know, um, not over too overcrowded or maybe managing growth well, um, but then also being a thriving economy. Like, how do you balance those two things? Well, I think one thing that history's taught us time and again is that you cannot control demography. Uh, people are going to move where they feel their prospects for happiness are greater. And you know, we saw that in extreme cases in the 1930s to the 1980s, really, with the massive influx of people into California, right? Yeah. Um, where they saw the economy as having lots of opportunity and the weather as being fabulous. And in more recent times, you know, and in the 60s, 70s, 80s, we saw that in Florida. And more recently, we've seen it in terms of migration into Arizona. Um I think now it's the mountain states. It's Colorado and, and Montana and Idaho uh, and Utah that are really getting a lot of attention for quality of life and the ability to have a you know a, a somewhat cosmopolitan kind of lifestyle, right? Yeah. Um, so we can't stop demography. What we can do is we can create a policy platform that attempts to really influence what kinds of industries grow and take root here and therefore what kinds of jobs grow and take root here. And, and clearly, with so much of the benefit of living in Montana being around the, uh, the great outdoor experience and the, the wildlife and, and the, the cleanliness of the air and the water, um, clearly attracting more technology jobs that that don't create byproducts that are uh, risky from an environmental perspective, uh, that don't create noise, that don't create uh, other disruptions to the to the the wild ecosystem. Clearly that would be very much in keeping with what we all love about Montana and want to try to protect and preserve. Um, and so we really need to have a strategy that very deliberately seeks to try to attract those kinds of opportunities and then to nurture them to grow faster here. In the meantime, are we going to see more traffic on our streets? Yes. Um, but that's not because we're attracting tech companies. It's because people are going to move here. 
And if we want our tax base uh, to continue to be robust and, and, and widespread so that we're not seeing significant increases in property taxes or not seeing a state income tax become necessary or a state uh, sales tax, for example, become necessary. Um, then we have to be more thoughtful about how we try to place our bets uh, in terms of creating the economy that we want to create. And I'm incredibly bullish on our ability here in Montana to do that and do that in a way that not only preserves the things that we've loved about Montana, but actually enhances them. Call me crazy, but I, I think we can do it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you're crazy. Uh, I talk to a lot of people who share that same vision and, you know, I look at like, I know it's kind of a, uh, maybe not so obvious comparison, but you look at the country, the Island country of Singapore and how they very distinctly went after, I think it's five or six different industries that they wanted to be really good at, right? They designed that country. Um, and you look at like where Montana is at now with some, a little bit of intention and like you're saying, great strategy and policy, we can, you know, really do something very unique and special and something that can be a model for many other States as well. So I'm with you, man. I, I, I think we it's have, great. <laughs> we have an, an amazing asset, by the way, there's, there's closer examples. If you look at the state of Colorado and, mm -hmm. and their advanced industry uh, development strategy, um, it's very much like you described. Um, and very well attuned and and executed at multiple layers of public policy uh, to the great benefit of the economy in Colorado. Um, but we have a, a distinct advantage here in Montana, Eric. That I don't, you know, I know it's going to last at least another decade, but you know, we can't just assume it's always going to be there. And that advantage is we're still small. So <laughs> the, the the very thing that people point to and say, well, this is our, our Achilles heel is our, also our strength. You know, I lived most of my adult life in the state of New Jersey where, you know, where we had 10 or 11 million people um, and politics were so entrenched around every corner and there was so much money fighting for and against every single issue. And there was no ability to really build consensus. There was no ability to really work effectively in communities to get things done um, because there was just too much noise, too many in, entrenched interests. Now here in Montana, where we have, you know, one twelfth of that population spread out so much further, clearly there are some entrenched interests, but the mere fact that there are relatively few of us who need to get around tables in order to make decisions to to evolve the way that to purposefully evolve the way that we want to live, uh, it, it just seems to me to be so much more possible than it is in most other places around the country. And shame on us if we don't figure out a way to take advantage of that. Yeah, man, that gets me excited. I'm pretty fired up now, uh, but I want to respect your time as well. So we're kind of coming to the end, and I guess you know the big things are, Pat, like what what where do you send people? Where do you want people to go? If people want to get in touch with you, um, where do they go? Yeah. Frontierangels.com is, is the place to start. Um, if you're an entrepreneur and you want to find out, 
you know, are you thinking about the kind of business that might be attractive to us? Then by all means, um, you'll find everything you're looking for at Frontier Angels. If you're somebody who's been thinking about getting involved in investing and have been hesitant to pull the trigger, or maybe, you know, even more commonly, uh, I talk to people all the time who say, oh, I tried that angel investing thing. It didn't work. I invested in two companies and they both went bankrupt. <laughs> well, you know, come talk to us about our portfolio strategy of <laughs> of how to think about investing in early stage companies, and and uh, you'll find more of that information as well at FrontierAngels.com. So that's the place that people should go. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I encourage people to do so. Uh, I know I will. Um, I'll be checking out your website this afternoon. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, thank you so much for coming on, Pat. I, I really enjoyed this this conversation. I learned a lot. Um, you're obviously a wealth of knowledge and experience and information when it comes to this field and tech and all of that. So, um, really appreciate it. Really appreciate your time. And, uh, especially, you know, cause you got beach time to get to down there in Mexico. So, um, thanks, thanks for Eric. On. I enjoyed talking to you. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Pat LaPointe. Hey everybody. This is your host, Eric Malzone. Don't leave yet. I have a few more requests for you. So, if you got value out of this podcast, I ask you to do a few things. Number one, go to wherever you're listening, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and go ahead and subscribe to the show. Number two, while you're there, if you feel that we earned it, please leave us a nice review. Number three, share it. Whether it be social media, email, texting, whatever it may be. I'm sure you know somebody who would get value out of this episode just like you did. So please go ahead and share it. And that's how we get the word out. So it's really valuable and super appreciative. It only takes a minute of your time. Next, if you know of somebody, including yourself, who would be a great guest for the show, please head on over to level5mentors.com, L-E-V-E-L, the number five, mentors.com. Get in touch with me. Let me know what you're thinking. Uh, make an introduction. Whatever it may be, you can also get me directly in my email, which is eric, E-R-I-C, at level5mentors.com. Lastly, if you just want to chat, you want to find out more, if you want to expand on some ideas, I love hearing from the audience. So go ahead and hit me up on social media. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You also have my email already. So I love to hear from you. I'm always looking for ways to improve the show, and I'm always looking to have great conversations. So don't hesitate to reach out. And once again, thank you for listening to the Black Diamond Podcast, and you can expect a lot more from us.